So good evening. Can everyone hear me in the back? Okay. So uh, we've barely been here 48 hours. How many of you feel like it's been at least six days? <laughs> so tonight I'd like to give a kind of a, an overview of how uh, metta practice works. And I'm calling it uh, opening to our radiant hearts through metta. So with this very simple practice of using phrases and continually bringing the intention to see where our hearts are, we set in motion a very profound uh, transformative process. That continual moment to moment just saying, let me bring that intention expressed through words as best I can to the moment. And we do it here on retreat and we can also increasingly do that in our daily lives. In all sorts of circumstances, meta is actually very, very suitable for being brought into a variety of situations, complex and so forth, in ways that some other meditation forms are not. I have several uh, students whose primary form of contemplative practice generally is doing metta practice while driving. (laughs) 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 So it's this moment to moment really coming back to, and for, for us, coming back to the phrases, coming back to the intention, I uh, really have stayed with an account of metta that I learned from Sylvia uh, quite a number of years ago when I was also, in a way, um, apprenticing with her. And she uh, uses the phrase uh, that with metta we cast a spell of kindness. We cast a spell of kindness over and over again, and we practice it. We practice that. So I want to say a few words about uh, metta in general, and then talk about some of the ways that metta works. Um, Ultimately, I believe that the deeper reason why metta works is, as Sylvia said and Trudy said, that our deeper nature is that of love. It's actually that of what I'm calling the radiant heart. That that is our deeper nature and it gets covered over. Metaphor is often used that our nature is like the sun or sometimes it says the moon and it gets covered by clouds. Just like some of the evenings here when we can get a glimpse of the sun or the moon but there are a lot of clouds. Well our experiences like that and in a way we are doing cloud thinning here. So the Buddha in one passage talks about the radiant quality of our deeper nature and actually it's associated in the text 
particularly with metta. This is, this is what's said. Luminous is this mind-heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This those who do not practice do not really understand. They do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind-heart, brightly shining, free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble, noble follower of the way really understands. For them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. And so it's actually seen to be an innate quality, which is really why ultimately we don't have to do anything to produce it. We don't have to make ourselves loving. We more have to uh, learn what gets in the way, what Trudy called the anti-meta forces, <laughs> if we want to use that kind of a metaphor. So, and so we find in many spiritual teachings this uh, really this direct pointing to this radiant essence. And what's, what's interesting for me also is that we also find that sense of a, of a deep-lying kindness and beauty of hearts in very ordinary situations and in, very, in everyday life. And also in everyday life situations that are sometimes challenging. You know, and I was thinking of also of the uh, hospital that Sylvia visited uh, in Berkeley, cancer uh, clinic really. And the, uh, she visited there Friday early morning. I visited there mid-morning uh, mid because we both have the same acupuncturist there. <laughs> and, we, and she works primarily with cancer patients. And we can get a sense of that quality of warmth and love. And also, I, I've been quite interested to um, read about uh, some of the findings in a, in a very recent book by uh, Rebecca Solnit, who lives in San Francisco, who, who I've met a few times, who wrote a book just recently called A Paradise Built in Hell which is basically how metta arises as a dominant force in natural disasters. And it's very much the same theme as Sylvie was bringing up with that situation of the, the uh, airline that ditched in, in the Hudson River in New York. And so she looked in a very uh, studious way at uh, the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. She looked at the Mexico City earthquake, 1985. The, uh, she also looked at September 11th at uh, Katrina and, and several other um, occurrences in other countries, uh, Argentina, earthquakes in Asia, and so forth. And what she basically found um, is that the spirit of metta comes out in natural disasters, counter to a lot of what we might think, and counter often to what the authorities think will happen. The authorities think people are going to be nasty, and they're typically not. You know? um, one of the studies in the book was of the San Francisco earthquake, and 
what she found there was that there was tremendous, tremendous outpouring of care, total giving away of resources. Interestingly, uh, Dorothy Day, who later founded Catholic Worker, was a child living in Oakland in 1906. And she talked about how her mother set up a kitchen, an outdoor kitchen outside their home in Oakland. And people came streaming from San Francisco via ferries and so forth. And this is what she said about the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake. What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindliness of everyone after, afterwards. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment that they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. And I guess the crisis was over and they went back to what, what they were doing before. But it's, you know, I, I also find it hard to read these without a lot of emotion coming up, you know, like, like Sylvia reading the account two nights ago. Interestingly, also, the philosopher William James was visiting at Stanford in 1906, and he also was witness to the earthquake. He said the two things that were most powerful for him in being in that situation were first, what he called the rapid nature of the improvisation of order out of chaos. And secondly, what he called the universal equanimity. Again, it goes counter to what we might think. He said, we soon got letters from the East ringing with anxiety and pathos, but I now know fully what I've always believed that the pathetic way of feeling great disasters belongs rather to the point of view of people at a distance than to the immediate victims. He said the cheerfulness was universal. Not a single whine or plaintive word did I hear from those with whom I spoke. Instead of that, there was a temper of helpfulness beyond the counting. I like to think that what I write of is a normal and universal trait of human nature. So we find that coming out both in deep spiritual practice and in disasters. There may be a link. <laughs> You'll have to evaluate your last day or two <laughs> in that context. And so, but, but I think that that finding, I'm, it's, it's very uplifting to hear about that and to read that because the newspapers really don't really bring out that message very much, do they? 
It really is like a disaster is happening, poor victims, everything gets objectified, you know, at a distance and so forth. But that's not really the lived experience of people. And if, if that's true, that there is this deep underlying kindness and radiance that gets covered over, then it really gives some way of understanding why we do the metta practice and why in some ways it's this continual intention practice to move closer to that core nature, to move closer to that uh, radiance. And that it's very crucial that we are doing with metta practice an intention practice and not a production practice. We are intending moving towards metta and not trying to produce it. Here I, Donald, sitting here saying phrases will produce a tremendously loving feeling of radiance that will spread throughout the room and be contagious, <laughs> you know. Uh, but ra- and that's a very important point because it means that all we need to do is just keep doing the phrases like Trudy was saying last night. We just need to keep doing it. We, in a sense, can rest with uh, the understanding that it was expressed in a line from T.S. Eliot once. He said, ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. And so if we notice that, oh my gosh, it's not working. Oh my gosh, I should be more loving and so forth. That's really extra. And it's good to know that then really to know that we're not being asked here to produce a loving heart through our efforts. So as we do the metta practice, we really uh, learn in a number of ways. And we open up more to that radiant heart that each of us has in several different ways, um, which have been talked about already some, but I I want to amplify some of them. And I want to talk about this really in four ways. Uh, The first is that we learn better to lead with our hearts. The second is that we deepen in concentration. The third is that we engage in a kind of purification process like like Trudy was talking about last night. And the fourth is that we, we begin to touch more that deeper nature that I was talking about. So I'm gonna talk about those four because really each of them is both a direction that we go, and it also, for each of them, we encounter challenges or difficulties. We see what stands in the way of me learning to lead with my heart, or what stands in the way of me leading with my heart? What stands in the way of concentration? What are the challenges of the purification process, and so forth? So I think it's helpful to really Um, see metta practice as a kind of training to learn to lead with our hearts. And even if we've, in a sense, been trained to lead in other ways, you know, maybe to lead with our minds or to lead with our bodies, so to speak, or if we've even been um, encouraged and maybe in many ways do lead with our hearts, we get further training in that. And it's For me personally, that's been really crucial because I think my basic nature is actually has a a warm emotional heart. But coming 
uh, of age as I did as a man in North American dominant culture. I was not trained to learn to lead with my heart. <laughs> you know, and so uh, it really took more conscious effort coming into my 20s and, and later to really move in that direction. And that practice has been really, really important. Uh, and so, for example, as I'm, I was thinking of a few vignettes that, that were kind of examples for me. And one of them is that I remember, um, I remember once watching, I think I was at college, I once was watching a James Dean movie, you know, with, with I guess, a bunch of people. And it was, I forget which one it was. I don't, um, I don't even remember the names right now. But I think it was, it was, uh, it may have been the famous one with the, some of you have seen with the race cars. What is that called? Rebel Without a Cause, that's right. And, and I remember that um, I was crying at the end of the film, which is not, was not my um, encouraged behavior. <laughs> Or, or typical behavior, and I remember just noticing that, you know, and I, I also remember, I remember in high school being very moved by driver ed movies. <laughs> <laughs> Seemingly more than most people. So, <laughs> so, I, so I knew that there was a live heart there, but it wasn't something that was brought out, you know, that it, it, it took that, it took further training to really even, you know, again, and I'm sure many of you, it's not just men, but many women, just to even have good access to my emotions. Not easily accessible, you know, like as a teenager, teenage boy, uh, for me at least. And so the, the, the training in that has been really, really helpful. You know, one of several ways to really bring, bring out that heart and yet it, it's a challenge. And I, I know that uh, for some of you, for example, your practice of metta has sometimes felt dry. You know, we, we hear those kind of reports from some, not, not all. And for, for me, uh, metta practice was not a very significant practice for the first year of my practice, partly because um, starting, uh, regular, starting retreats about 30 years ago, uh, we didn't have meta retreats, I think, probably till 10 or 15 years ago. And metta was just taught as an afterthought. We did it, we'd do it for 10 minutes at the end of a sitting. But we didn't do the systematic. So I never really had systematic training for a long time. So it felt kind of dry, kind of nice, but dry. And then I did my first retreat, which was a week. And it was actually a self-retreat, which uh, may not have been the greatest idea because I didn't have really good guidance. It was about 20 years ago. But I was... <laughs> I was doing it. I was doing the metta. I thought I was doing it the right way, but it was kind of, uh, didn't seem to be really dramatic. I certainly wasn't having gushing, radiant heart um, flowing outwards and touching all beings. It wasn't even, didn't even feel like it was touching myself. <laughs> and, um, and I had this experience. Of, I kept on doing it. You know, I think there was also that kind of faith that Trudy was talking about. Uh, I had that faith, or maybe it was Sylvia, maybe both, <laughs> um, that I, I had that faith and I kept doing it. And I had this very interesting experience occur, actually not actually in the formal metta, but I think on the sixth day of the week or so, 
I was um, just, I think, cleaning up after breakfast. And I just heard myself say, I love you. Just <laughs> out of nowhere. I said, oh, this meta practice. Oh, it works in, works in interesting ways, you know. And, um, and I, I've, heard a, I've heard similar stories. In fact, Sharon Salzberg tells a very similar story of the first time she did metta practice. And she, I think, was trying to do a week. And I think she was called out of it because there was a crisis at IMS. And she, it also felt very dry to her. This is now kind of the leading loving kindness teacher in North America. But her first metta felt dry. It did. And she was doing it. And uh, she was called out. And so I think she did four or five days. And as she was going over to where she had to help deal with the community situation, I think she knocked over a vase. And her first reaction was, such a klutz. But then right after it, she heard, such a klutz, but I love you. (laughs) And again, she said, ah, those days weren't totally a waste. You know, so it uh, is partly to say that this works in mysterious ways, you know. And we keep doing it, and then something can get touched. So it's partly just to uh, to keep uh, working in that way, to keep keep with the practice. <clears throat> about four years ago, I did a long metta retreat, the longest I've done. I did about five weeks of metta, which was quite something. I had never done more than a week before that, and it. It felt transformative. I think as probably many of you are already feeling, it um, doing metta, this concentration practice, over and over again, it uh, definitely uh, sets up grooves in the neurological systems. <laughs> you know? And I could feel myself just uh, going into the place where the metta was just flowing without so much effort. The phrases were just happening. And it felt like this, this uh, metta groove that I was in. And in, in fact, it, um, after that, it's felt like that those five weeks established some way that metta is way more accessible just in the moment. It's almost like I go, it's like I hear sometimes shamans, they hear a drum, one beat of a drum, and they go right into a altered state. And it's a little bit like doing a lot of metta. It gets way more accessible. And we can really learn to lead with our hearts. And one of the most uh, powerful experiences for me on that retreat really had to do with this quality of leading with the heart more. From doing metta for so long a time, I came to feel every moment of judgment as, in some ways, uh, an off moment. Maybe like you're feeling at times, every moment of judgment. And I even came to feel every moment when I wasn't clearly in my heart as an off moment, even when I would just uh, be in the dining hall and say, that person is eating a lot, without, even without a judgmental tone. It felt off to me. And so I actually had a practice that developed in those weeks where every time I noticed myself off in that way, I had to come back and in a way, remedy the situation. So if I notice myself just saying, even something like that person is walking with a limp in a descriptive way that didn't have metta, I have to come back, I better do metta for that person right now. 
it was like that. And it really was um, powerful for me just to see that for me, in that um, context, not to be in my heart felt like a distortion, even when it wasn't overtly uh, negative. And so it really um, taught me more, I think, about that, that aspect of leading with the heart. We can use other supports that can help us to lead with our heart. And I really loved the emphasis last night in Trudy's talk, which I really heard as reminding us that our vulnerability, which we feel in general and we can at times, and we can feel sometimes in the metta practice through the difficulties and ups and downs, that, that the vulnerability is a way that we open to our hearts. And we can deliberately uh, at times do that in many traditions reflecting on death is a way to open us up to our hearts. And as many of you know, in Tibetan tradition, the initial practices that one does is to reflect on impermanence and death. Because in the light of that reflection, one can really ask oneself what matters. And ultimately part of the answer of what matters is an open heart matters. Caring matters. And so sometimes reflection on, on, on death in that way or on impermanence or even on suffering, on others' suffering, on my own suffering can open us up to that, to that um, sense of the heart. You know, as in uh, that uh, Bob Dylan song that Trudy gave us, uh, everything is broken. Everything, we can see things. And I, it, it reminded me of um, a time about, about 18 years ago when I had uh, jaw surgery. I was born with um, my mother's upper jaw and my father's lower jaw. And the, uh, it, or it might be the other way around. And this resulted in problems of bite. And so one of my major uh, ordeals as a human being has been to undergo a total, I think, of about eight years of orthodonture in two separate episodes. I can feel the compassion, (laughs) (laughs) including from age 13 to 18, which is a really rough time to have orthodontics, you know, and probably can the therapist sitting next to me probably trace, we can trace a lot to those five years. So, um, yeah. So, and it, and it, and it didn't work actually. <laughs> the orthodontry didn't work. So I had to do it again as an adult. And part of that was a lead up to surgery where they basically broke my jaws and, and realigned them. And I had this surgery and I had general anesthesia. And I've been told by a good friend, Jean Achterberg, some of you may know her work. She's written books on women and healing and has worked a lot with people with cancer using imagery and, and so forth. And Jean says that it's not really so well known that general anesthesia brings one very close to death, quite close to clinical death. Uh, doctors don't say that so much. <laughs> And my experience 
having general anesthesia, having my jaws broken and waking up was I was in an altered state for 10 days where I saw everything as incredibly vulnerable. And not just people, but I remember being in the hospital bed and looking at this mug and saying, and just having compassion for the mug because it was going to break at some point. And having that sense of um, um, compassion and a sense of the vulnerability and fragility of everything, you know, including myself. And you know, for me, that kind of awareness and the compassion alternated with fear, actually. So we learn to lead with our hearts in different ways through metta practice. A second main way that metta works is that we develop in concentration. By repeating these phrases over and over again, we are concentrating the mind. And that concentration brings a lot of transformative power when we do it. The word used in the uh, teachings of the Buddha for concentration is uh, samadhi, as many of you know. And I, along with many others, think that concentration is not a very good translation. That uh, the the word actually, samadhi, the first part of it, S-A-M, is related to uh, being Pali and Sanskrit being Indo-European languages, it's actually related to Western words like summary or Thomas Aquinas, summa theologica. You know, it's related to the sense of summary, summation, completion, uh, kind of integration. And so I think a better word for uh, then concentration might be unification or even integration, a bringing together. And, and so when we're concentrating, we're not so much having this separate laser-like mind connecting with our phrases, but we're actually unifying our being through the phrases. And I think that's a, it's a good way to understand concentration. And so we are doing this practice, and, and many of you have asked in the groups, do we do this practice uh, all the time? Do we do it in addition to the sittings and walkings? Do we do it when we're eating? Do we do it all the time? The answer is yes, all the time. It really simplifies things. (laughs) There's only one thing to do. (laughs) And we do it over and over and over again. (laughs) And it has its its, uh, challenging aspects, but it also has its beautiful aspects. Kierkegaard once said, purity of heart is to will one thing. We've got purity of heart for one week (laughs) in that sense. We are are, uh, willing one thing. So we're doing it all the time. And I wanted to say some words about what a concentration practice is in relationship to mindfulness practice, particularly some uh, further guidance in the metta practice that I don't think we've had, at least in the hall, um, maybe in the small groups. Um, One of them is that when we are practicing with the phrases and repeating the phrases, when 
thoughts come, or emotions come, and they're more or less part of the background, or they're kind of just coming, and they're not real strong, and they don't last so long, we don't really have to do anything with them. We just let them come and go, and we stay with the phrases. You know? And so we can have uh, even a strong emotion comes for 10 seconds. We don't have to switch to it. We can really just stay with the phrases. The basic guideline that, that I have heard from my teachers is that we really keep returning to the phrases. We can call that the meditation object over and over again, unless we are taken away for quite a substantial time. You know, unless we have, you know, sometimes grief might be evoked. And it's not just grief for 10 seconds or a minute, but it's grief that just takes us over. Maybe there was a recent death or something like that. We can really be a um, strong quality of our experience and clearly be the dominant thing happening. In that case, we might switch either to mindfulness practice or maybe to compassion practice and work with it directly. So when things get really dominant, then we work with them directly. If they're, if, they're, if they're happening. Otherwise, if they're just occurring and not real strong, moderate or, or less strength, we just keep coming back to the phrases. And that includes also um, physical sensations, and it really suggests a little bit different practice that, again, I wanted to, to say tonight because um, literally it can save you some pain, uh, which is that with physical sensations, if we have strong physical sensations that are really taking away our attention, with mindfulness practice, we might stay with them if we knew that they were not causing damage because there's a tremendous value in investigating our sense of pleasant and unpleasant and tightening and contraction and so forth. It's very valuable. In a concentration practice, we don't do that in the same way. And in fact, if, if there are strong physical sensations my suggestion is that we shift our posture so we can stay with the metta phrases. You know? And so it's, it's, it's really, it, it, isn't it a relief? <laughs> it's a relief in many ways. I mean, it may not be a relief to say, oh my God, I've got these metta phrases all the time. And I get a, but you get, the, you, get, you get this prize of, not, you know, of really uh, not needing to stay with difficult physical sensations that unless they are there, no matter what posture you're in, then, then you'd have to switch. But if they're there in the kind and you shift your posture and they leave, you can just go back to the metaphrases. So I think that's, that's some important uh, guidance. Um, and there's also, I wanted to say something else about uh, concentration practice. It's helpful to have a sense of balance between what we might call doing and being. It can seem like, especially in the beginning, our metta practice involves a lot of doing. I'm continually saying these phrases. It feels like I'm continually, almost like keeping things cranked up, right? And it can feel like a lot of effort. It can feel like I'm doing a lot, and that's necessary. You know, a certain amount of effort in that sense, uh, we, we might call it a kind of proactive effort or proactive um, bringing about the phrases is really necessary. And yet, as the metaphrases start to gain some momentum, it's important to know that we also want to have a more receptive kind of effort that really is more 
uh, almost like a entering into a quality of being. It's really entering into that spirit of metta, the feeling of metta. And that it's, it's, it's uh, something that is a little more relaxed. If the phrases are actually going, we can have a sense of just relaxing more into the feeling and not having always to be the do- doing the doing. So it's very helpful just to check in and ask yourself about that balance at certain times. Even though near the beginning, the first kind of uh, effort is important. And so we develop in concentration in this way. And there are incredible benefits from having a concentrated mind. I just wanted to say a few of these because I think it's really, it's really uh, crucial. We, we learn after a while, and this is one of the, for me, discoveries of doing metta in retreats, that we can actually have the phrases going and it doesn't use our discursive part of our mind. It actually uses a part of the mind that's not our thinking mind. In the text, it's talked about the mind being pliable and malleable. And we actually can have the phrases going and not be thinking necessarily. And some of you know this because you can have the phrases going and be thinking at the same time. We've <laughs> <laughs> had reports on that, you know. So it's, it's, what's, you know, that, that's interesting, isn't it? You can have the phrases going and have a whole background conversation going on <laughs> at the same time. Um, but the, it develops this way that we actually rest with the phrases ultimately in a level of mind that's beneath the discursive level. And it's quite interesting. And that opens us up to deeper concentration. As we do that, we develop a kind of steadiness and ease. The body relaxes tremendously with concentration. As we deepen in concentration, the body, the mind, the heart relax in its very uh, beautiful way that really is, is renewing, is really is resting. Ultimately, when we develop concentrative abilities, it helps us in the meditation hall as well as daily life to be able to rest with our inner resources and not be so influenced by what's happening outwardly. If I have concentration and I can stay inside, it can help tremendously when things are buzzing around in my daily life. You know, so for example, uh, martial artists, like someone doing Aikido, for example, would develop a tremendous concentration with the belly, with what's called the hara, and be able actually to center there in ways that the whole flurry of activities would not knock that person off the center. When we develop a concentrated mind, we have that capacity to um, have our own center more and more, no matter what is happening. That's our direction. And so here, we simply keep on practicing concentration and we see get what gets in the way of concentration. We see distraction, we see getting foggy, we see, we see our minds getting confused, we see our minds producing what, what we sometimes call meta models. You know, where when you're saying the phrase, isn't it interesting that you can actually be, have said the phrases, you know, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand times in the last day, and another round comes around and says, what are my phrases? <laughs> isn't that interesting? 
how many people can relate to that? <laughs> yeah. And we can notice that, or we notice, you know, when I was, my first phrases are, may I be happy and contented? And I noticed at times when I was a little foggy, my phrase would become, may I be happy and cemented? <laughs> Made me think of like a New, a New Jersey swamp or something. <laughs> Um, or, you know, what my last phrase is, may I be free and live with ease, and that once that formed, may I be free and live with lice. <laughs> Just comes up and may I be safe and free from harm became, may I be safe and free from home. You know, or um, I remember Sally Clough, who also teaches uh, Metta, she, she remembered having a Metta model come up where she said, may I be free from something? <laughs> so we, we, we notice those moments and we simply can't, we keep coming back and, and that concentrated mind develops further. A third aspect that <clears throat> we develop is what Trudy talked at some length about last night, and that's the quality we might call purification. That, and I'm, I'm going to suggest that for some of us, the word purification may not be the best word. We may want to use a word like transformation, because I think we're not really wanting to suggest that some part of ourselves is impure in that way. But what we are really, what we are meaning by talking about purification, I think are really two processes. One of them is that we evoke this radiance. We evoke the beautiful qualities. We evoke the kindness. We evoke the concentration. We evoke the stability. We evoke what I sometimes like to call enlightened qualities. And the second is that we work through the difficult stuff. And those, I think, are both aspects of what we can call purification. We move towards the beautiful, the, the metta, and we work through the hard stuff. And they're kind of complementary. And I, I've come to see that actually the, the large transformation process needs both. We need to have experiences of the beauty as well as the difficulty, where we get a little bit out of balance. You know that, and it's really, it's really important to have both. And so we, we bring out more of that quality of the brightly shining quality of mind and heart. We bring out that our um, spontaneous warmth. We feel that. We feel our compassion. We feel perhaps our gratitude for the benefactor that we worked with today. We have moments where we do say, I love you to uh, ourselves. You know, we have, and we have those moments. And then we then we also work through the challenging material. And metta retreats, I have found, when compared with Vipassana retreats or mindfulness retreats, actually stir up a little bit more. And some of you may have noticed uh, very strong dreams. How many people have had some in fairly intense dreams here? They occur. Uh, and you don't need to worry about them. And you don't need to worry if you have a dream of yourself being violent or something like that. You don't need to think, oh my God, I'm, I'm a hidden something, <laughs> you know, or that there's something really wrong because the dreams just are evoked. And 
Remember that dreams are metaphorical and that dream of violence may be related to a way of getting more in touch with your own um, anger or your own uh, sense of resentment that, um, that may be there towards yourself, someone, someone at the retreat, someone at home and so forth. And the dreams can express that. But things do get, to, things do get stirred up. Um, and we go through a process that can feel a lot like purification. I remember during that uh, longer meta retreat for me, um, one evening at 3 a.m., I suddenly woke up in bed and reviewed my entire intimate relationship history for two hours <laughs> and then went back to sleep. And I never thought about that history before or after during the retreat. It just sort of comes. That, I would call that a moment of purific. Something, something needed to come through. And it works like that. Things, things come through. We also, at times, open up to parts of ourselves that are wounded and where there's pain. And that necessarily is part of the process. We open up to simply uh, the difficult energies that Trudy was talking about, the, uh, the so-called hindrances, the qualities of desire, of wanting, of aversion in its different forms, of restlessness, of sleepiness, and so forth. And that's part of the purification process. And in fact, in the, the text that Trudy referred to, The Path of Purification, which is a 5th century text, which really summarizes a great uh, amount, actually, of how metapractice was, was <clears throat> done over many centuries and is our source for actually a lot of the technique that we use here, uh, it's said that the core purification that occurs in, in the language of the Buddhist tradition is the purification of what are called the kalesas, or the defilements, sometimes translated as defilements, which probably needs a new translation, but it, it refers essentially to greed, hatred, and delusion in, in, their, in their fundamental natures. And that will get purified as well those qualities get purified. <clears throat> I wanted to mention two specific areas that get purified that are, I think, particularly important. One of them is that our whole quality of caring and loving will tend to get purified in metta practice. There's this teaching that's quite subtle and powerful uh, connected with metta practice called the teaching of the near and far enemies. And many of you know this. It's a beautiful teaching applied to loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, which says there are, in a way, imposters who look like love or look like loving kindness or compassion or joy, but they're not the real thing. And so the, 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 and the, these are called near enemies. So the near enemy of compassion is pity, which is kind of a little distant sense of superior feeling relating to someone else. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It can look like equanimity, but it's not really. And the near enemy of loving kindness is a kind of um, possessive love, or it's an we could say an attached love, which of course we all have. But in a sense, we purify that. We work through. And good relationships, or uh, I think really can, that are 
let's say, connected with that spirit of metta, can also help us to work through the qualities that are more compulsive or possessive. And that's one of the, the ways that metta practice purifies. It develops, we might say, a more purified quality of care. And a second really important area to mention is that a really crucial transformation that can occur with metta practice is a lessening in self-judgment. It's a really big issue, I think, in our culture. And it's very pervasive. It's been a very important part of my own practice to work with self-judgment and judgment of others, because the two are connected. Have you discovered that? (laughs) That the two are very much connected. And in metta practice, we often see that. We often see oh, here's how my meta practice is doing. I'm not so loving. Or like I think was mentioned this morning, that question of feeling like it's not really happening so well and having some, some self-judgment or some grief and so forth. And it's very common in metta practice and also extremely common just generally. I, it's definitely among the top three challenging aspects of practice for Westerners. And it's been an interesting exploration for me. I'm actually writing a book on that now, on the whole area. And I've been working with uh, monthly groups called uh, More or Less on Transforming the Judgmental Mind for about seven years. So it's really, and I I could give a whole talk on it, but I'm going to talk about two more minutes on it. Uh, But it's really something just to notice it when it comes up, just to notice that flavor of self-judgment. Metta is a tremendous resource when there's self-judgment. And for many of us, doing metta just towards ourselves is completely appropriate for the whole retreat, if that feels if that feels appropriate. And so really just to notice when there are those judgments and to know that the metta, the metta towards self, is a beautiful antidote. And there are also a number of other ways of working with judgment, but maybe I'll mention those in the second talk that I'll give, because each of us are going to give two talks. But I want, to, I want to finish with this last area, which is really to return to where I started, which is to come back to that sense of, the, of metta working because it reflects our depths, because there's something in our nature which is of the nature of metta, and which is actually more fundamental than the other stuff. More fundamental. The other stuff is superstructure. Greed, hatred, and delusion, all the clouds, they are a less fundamental level of our being. And that's, that's the, as we go more deeply in metta, that's what we find more and more. That's certainly what the Buddha taught That's certainly what uh, could be said to be found from those disasters, that our most basic level is kindness. And a lot of people, you know, I remember Thich Nhat Hanh once saying, in the context of the Vietnam War, people's small stuff fell away and they just went to caring. A, A demanding situation, they just went to basic caring and the small, we might say, neurotic stuff, it just left. It was less fundamental, and sometimes the situations bring that out. So we find that that um, deeper nature. In the text, 
that deeper nature is called this brightly shining citta, or we might call the brightly shining mind and heart quality or factor of mind and heart. And it's particularly linked with metta. It's quite interesting. It's said that metta develops it. It's said that this brightly shining quality is there in anyone, even if they have no understanding of it. And even if they're completely in the translation that said completely have corrupt minds, even have minds that are full of greed, hatred, and delusion, their nature still includes this brightly shiny chitta. It's just extremely covered over. So very optimistic view of human nature, right? or finding, we might say. And, and it's said that when we, did, when we work on metta, when we do metta practice, we directly move towards that brightly shining quality of mind and heart. The Buddha says, the liberation of mind and heart by loving kindness shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. That's our direction. It's something that we can taste at times and that can hopefully, can hopefully draw, us, draw us further. There's another very powerful way that that sense of uh, our deeper being being radiant manifests, and that's in a sense of interconnection. It's really another expression of love. One of the expressions of touching our depth is to have this radiant heart manifesting. Another is to have a sense of interconnection and lack of real radical division between self and other. There's a very powerful uh, passage in the teachings of the Buddha where he comes to visit three monks, Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kimbila, and he greets them as the Anuruddhas. They all actually have the same name. And this is, uh, and so the Buddha asked them, how is it that you Anuruddhas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend regarding one another with the eye of affection? These three monks living together. And Anuruddha, the, the actual, the one who has the Anuruddha name, who gives his name to the others, he says, we have developed metta in regard to our acts of body, speech, and mind. We have diverse bodies, but assuredly, we actually share one mind and heart, and that's the mind and heart of loving kindness. Which kind of points to some of the potential that's, that's there. It's said that they no longer prefer their own happiness to the happiness of others. That they, for them, the happiness of each of the other two is just as important as their own happiness. The quality of the liberation through, through loving kindness. So I want to end just with... Um, two expressions of this, of this sense of depth. And really this practice of cultivating um, loving kindness. And the first is from uh, Martin Luther King. And I'm very cognizant that our retreat ends on his birthday. And we may have a little more attention to that as the, re- as the retreat goes on. January 15th, our last day is his birthday. And he was a tremendous advocate 
of love actually as a social force. He talked about love being something that's strong. Loving kindness, we could say, is something that's strong, not something that's just about being nice, something that's actually quite strong and powerful. It's strong enough to change centuries-old institutions such as racism, and it has. And so he, this is what he said about that centrality of love. And, it really, and listen to his language. This is quite similar to metta. Because he talks about the intention to love as being central. He says this, I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. And I've seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. And here he, he quotes the uh, Christian Bible. Because John was right, God is love. One who hates does not know God, but one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And to close with one of my favorite uh, passages in the work of uh, Thomas Merton. It's uh, talking about that quality of love as also as our basic nature that manifests at times in mysterious ways in our lives. And this is from uh, one of his books. Uh, it's actually from a book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. I'll end with this. This is, this is um, a passage that, about an experience that he had which occurred after he went from his monastery in uh, um, Trappist, Kentucky, uh, south of Louisville. I, I, used to, I lived in Kentucky for four years and used to spend a lot of time at the monastery. And um, he left the monastery to go to Louisville for his dentist appointment. After his dentist appointment, this is what happened. It's a little bit like my, my dental experience. <laughs> so after the Metta retreat, go to your dentist. <laughs> in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. 
Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is. If only they could see, if only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. (laughs) Let's just sit for a minute or so. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their hearts, the core of their reality. If only they could see all see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.